we have a population of children who are incredibly anxious and are incredibly depressed. And these are big warning signs that our children don't feel safe. They don't feel safe in adult communities. They don't feel safe in peer communities. And really, this is my goal. I want to see us get far more educated about our brains and our children's brains. It's exciting and it's empowering because now the science can show us what's going on and it used to be invisible. Welcome to the School Behaviour Secrets Podcast. I'm your host, Simon Corrigan. My co-host is Emma Shackleton, and we're obsessed with helping teachers, school leaders, parents, and of course, students when classroom behaviour gets in the way of success. We're going to share the tried and tested secrets to classroom management, behavioural special needs, whole school strategy, and more, all with the aim of helping your students reach their true potential. Plus, we'll be letting you eavesdrop on our conversations with thought leaders from a around the world, so you'll get to hear the latest evidence-based strategies before anyone else. This is the School Behaviour Secrets Podcast. Hi there, welcome to School Behaviour Secrets. My name's Simon Kerrigan, and if I could go back in time and be any man or woman from history, I'd be Richie Cunningham from the documentary about 50s teenagers' happy days. And before you say, but he was a character in a sitcom, he wasn't a real person, I'd ask you in return, wasn't he? Really? Or is that what they want you to believe? I'm joined here today by my always knowledgeable co-host, Emma Shackleton. Hi, Emma. Hi, Simon. So, Emma, today I'd like to start by asking you a question. Okay, well, we've been in that rut for around a year, so let's just keep plowing on, I guess. According to a 2020 meta-study, so that's where researchers look at the results of lots of pieces of research and combine them together. By what percentage does the average anti-bullying program in school actually reduce bullying incidents by? Okay, I'm guessing that this number is not going to be as high as schools were hoping it might be. Let's see, bullying reduced by 20%. Am I close to the correct answer? Bang on. Oh. 20% exactly. Wow. (laughs) That seems low though, doesn't it? Yeah. It's, It's interesting when you look at the research, how little impact some of these have. I certainly remember when I used to work at the pupil referral unit where we taught kids who were permanently excluded from school. When we used to do anti bullying week, we used to find it increased the incidence of bullying. So we had to run it as a theme across the year and not make a sort of special week after it to, to get the impact we wanted. Yeah, almost by drawing attention to it, you're then highlighting it and kind of putting it in people's heads, aren't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a group of children that isn't representative of the population as a whole. Those are children with SEMH issues and behavior issues. But yeah, it's interesting how we need to take the right approach, I guess to reduce bullying in school. Otherwise, we might accidentally make things worse. Yes. So this is a really important topic. But why are you asking me about this today? Because today we're sharing my interview with Jennifer Fraser, who has released a number of books on the subject of bullying. And in today's episode, she's going to reveal how, when a child experiences bullying, it can actually affect the growth and development of their brain, why some children and adults engage in bullying behaviour, and what we should be doing to prevent bullying in school. And we look at the particular impact that bullying by adult figures has on children. Okay, that sounds like a really important conversation that anybody who works with children needs to hear. But just before we jump into the episode, how do you fancy paying it forward with a small good deed? We rely on word of mouth recommendations. So if you find the School Behaviour Secrets podcast interesting and useful, and you know somebody else who might like it too, do them a favour by opening your podcast app and clicking the share button. 
And now, here's Simon's interview with Jennifer Fraser. Today, I'm really excited to welcome Jennifer Fraser to the show. Jennifer is a best-selling author, an award-winning educator, and has a PhD in comparative literature. Her online courses and workshops provide dynamic lessons in the impact neuroscience has on personal development and culture change. She is the author of Teaching Bullies, Zero Tolerance on the Court or in the Classroom, and her new book, The Bullied Brain, Heal Your Scars and Restore Your Health, examines how bullying affects the brain at a neurological level and how the brain can heal. Jennifer, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Simon. And can I just say, I really enjoyed the book. It's so full of research and information, but it's really, really accessible to lay people like me. I used to be a mainstream teacher, so thank you for writing that in a way that helps us access sometimes quite complex ideas from neuroscience. Well, it's funny. One of the readers of the book, who's a lawyer actually, said to me, this is the first time I've ever read a page turner about neuroscience. <laughs> so the book is focused not just on the impact that kids have when they bully each other, which is something we often think about when we think about bullying, but also the impact that adults can have when they engage in bullying against their students. So what led you to pick this topic? I guess that I got pulled into a bullying situation at a school where I was a teacher. And there was reports coming in about children being bullied. And it was terrible. Lots of homophobic slurs and swearing, yelling in the face, scenes of public humiliation, descriptions by students of the behavior being vicious. And it wasn't by students. It was by my colleagues. It was by teachers. And what I learned in the research is, and this makes a lot of sense to me, bullying is a learned behavior. Our brains are born, babies' brains are born wired for empathy. And, you know, empathy is one of our greatest superpowers. It allows us to understand what other people are feeling and thinking and intending. And it's one of the most sought after qualities in the work world. And yet we're allowing our children to grow up having this neural network, this crucial part of their brains become damaged and harmed. And so, I mean, these teachers were just people who had grown up in that system. They had had it hammered into their own brains, most likely during childhood, to believe that it was actually an effective method of working with young people. I mean, they knew it was bad because they only did it behind closed doors. And yet, you know, when we do confront people with these types of damaging behaviors, they'll be the first to say, I didn't know it was doing harm. But then you have to ask the question, then why didn't you do it with your superiors? Why did you only do it with children? What is the biological impact of that kind of bullying on how a child's brain develops and functions if they're being put under that kind of daily attack? What does the neuroscience tell us? This is the huge breakthrough because now neuroscientists and psychiatrists and doctors, they can see on brain scans the damage being done. They can see it in real time on an fMRI, and they can see it on an EEG. They can see it on brain scans. And that's the most important takeaway, is that for us, we tend to minimize emotional abuse and psychological abuse and verbal abuse. We tend to minimize emotional neglect, an adult withdrawing love from a child. But in actual fact, it does incredible harm to brains. And so you can see anatomical differences. You can see neurological scarring. You can see parts of the brain that are shrunken and shriveled because they've been so badly harmed. And we have a population of children who are incredibly anxious and are incredibly depressed. And these are big warning signs that our children don't feel safe. They don't feel safe in adult communities. They don't feel safe in peer communities. And really, this is my goal. I want to see us get far more educated about our brains and our children's brains. It's exciting 
and it's empowering because now the science can show us what's going on and it used to be invisible. You've said a lot there. And I just want to take a moment to just sort of think about that in terms of the bullying leaves a physical impact on the brain. And that's remarkable when you think about it. And in your book, you talk about how some adults who engage in bullying think they're doing it for the child's good, and yet they're doing all this literal physical damage to the neural networks and the the very children that they say they're trying to help. It's the same argument that we used to hear for corporal punishment. The adult would say, I'm doing this for your own good. Well, there's extensive brain research that shows that corporal punishment does nothing but harm brains. And it harms quite significantly the part of the brain referred to as the prefrontal cortex. And that's the CEO of the brain. It's the part of the brain that makes a lot of judicious decisions. It thinks ahead. It weighs pros and cons. It's reasonable and rational. It's such an important part of the brain, and yet corporal punishment is harming it. And it's going to harm the way in which a child behaves in the future. It's going to make the child unempathic, humiliated, and aggressive, quite likely. So same thing with verbal abuse or bullying in the home or in the classroom. If you're not treating a child with respect and empathy and kindness and compassion, you are not bringing that brain to healthy development. It's not going to become as high performing and as happy and as effective as an adult as you might hope. And the research shows, and you go through this in the book as well, that, you know, like sports coaches who are being, in their eyes, ultra tough and trying to bring the person up to be the best they can be. Actually, the irony is it doesn't work. Like corporal punishment, it just doesn't work. Um, One of the greatest parts of my research involved learning about a laboratory of neuroscientists in California who were working away and they developed this online gamified brain training program. And it's now being tested and assessed and researched by hundreds of different independent groups. And they were working away in the lab and the goal was to stop Alzheimer's or dementia. And they knew that we keep our bodies strong as we go through our lives, but we tend to ignore our brains throughout our lives unless there's a crisis. And so our brains would get flabby and they weren't in shape and they weren't high powered. And lo and behold, for some of us, that leads to dementia. So they were working on training brains and seeing incredible results. Well, the telephone rings in the lab. They pick it up, and it's Alex Guerrero. He is the trainer for Tom Brady, who is the American quarterback, who, if he's not known to your audience, he's one of the greatest athletes alive today. And he's 44 or 45, and he competes with 22-year-olds, and he outperforms them on the football field in America. And then after he came forward publicly and said, you know what, I do your brain training every day, and this is why it gives me a competitive edge Harry Kane, who will be definitely known to your audience, he came public as well and said, I also use the brain training program. And so for coaches, I think this is really exciting. For coaches, this is an opportunity to say, oh, you mean Tom Brady and Harry Kane don't have someone screaming and yelling at them, distracting their brain, filling their brain with anxiety when they're trying to concentrate, focus, do creative, innovative, split-second strategic moves? Why is that? Oh, just a second. They actually work on brain training. They are not being lambasted 24-7 by someone who thinks they're helping them. I was also really interested in the research you talk about on the impact of shame and how that affects our ability to empathize. Can you tell us about what the research says? Well, shame is a neurological response to aggression. So if somebody's yelling at you or humiliating you or physically threatening you in some way, if they're grabbing you and detaining you, holding you in for more yelling, these types of behavior, your brain wants you to survive at all times. So it's going to respond by becoming small, hunched over, bent down, eyes cast down to the floor, because your brain is saying, okay, 
we're dealing with an aggressive predator here. It's very dangerous. Let's make ourselves small and unthreatening so that it starts to give us some space and go away. And let's just pray it doesn't eat us. So this is part of the stress response that the brain has. And what happens in childhood, and it can happen in adulthood too, but what happens in childhood is the brain starts to predict that this is going to be a typical scenario and it starts to misunderstand lots of physical and emotional cues and sees them all as aggressive. It's predicting more harm and danger. So it starts to respond to all kinds of neutral activities, even with this sort of shameful position, this hope that you won't get noticed because that makes you in danger. What kind of damage does that do to the kids? You can imagine in terms of their learning, in terms of their confidence, in terms of their emotional development, what kind of a long-term damage do we see? The kinds of stress responses that we have to bullying and abuse in all forms, they start to take over cortical real estate. The brain has limited space. It has limited cortical real estate. So if you are pouring all your energy as a child into safety, into emotionally and physically protecting yourself, you're taking away precious resources from creativity, from problem solving, from social emotional connections with others, and from your health, really seriously from your health. Because we now know that, and research is very clear, that the more damage that's happening in the brain from the stress response system, your fight, flight, and freeze, very primal evolutionary created systems to keep you alive. If that keeps getting triggered and tripped up by being in a toxic environment with the powerful people in your world, your adults or peers, it's also damaging your immune system and it's damaging your blood vessels. It's doing significant damage basically all throughout your brain and body. And so people that don't address this, when they don't understand that their body and brain are having these kinds of reactions and they're invisible to us and we don't talk about them as a society, our children aren't learning that they need to do very specific evidence-based things to get their health back. And the research shows, and this is from the late 1990s, the research shows there's a direct correlation between child abuse, emotional, physical, sexual, emotional neglect, and emotional abuse and physical neglect. There is a direct correlation between that and midlife chronic disease. So if you've grown up in a home If you've gone to school, if you've been in a sport program, if you've gone to a church or a club as a child where you've been repeatedly exposed to this type of toxicity, you are much more likely than a person who hasn't to have a midlife chronic health condition and have a shortened lifespan. That's incredible when you think about it. So when people often think about bullying, they're thinking about the short-term ramifications, the emotional damage done, the social connections that are broken, the damage to the child's academic progress. No one's thinking 30 years down the line. And ironically, from what you say, if I understand it correctly, many of the people that experience this as children who experience this damage then go on to perpetuate it as adults in future life. That's the saddest part of it really is, you know, I thought a lot about this writing the book and I address it a lot in the book because really this is going to take a huge impetus on the part of all of us. Because people who perpetuate these bullying behaviors are basically showing you that they were once a target. They were once a victim. It's extremely rare that you have someone born sociopathic or psychopathic. It's very rare. These are behaviors that come from a lot of childhood harm. And yet we treat it as a moral issue. It's a flaw in character. These are bad people. Well, a really great statistic that I use, and I use it in the book, as you know, to get people to understand that we're making a big mistake is that we have to understand that bullying and abuse, when we see it in adults, is a medical crisis. It's a sign of mental illness, 
And we need to operate on that level to get them rehabilitation and the help they need. Of course, the victim comes first. But the bottom line is, if we see a child who's exhibiting bullying behaviors, that is a cry for help. We need to go upstream and find out what's wrong in that child's life. How is that child getting so hurt that they're bringing their aggression out and acting it out with other children that have less power than them? We need to find the source and then get that family the help that they need. But the statistic is 70%, that's seven zero, seventy 70% of inmates in the prison system of California were once in foster care. Wow, that's scary, isn't it? It just goes to show you that it's not that they're bad people per se. What they are is very desperate people. They're very threatened people. They're aggressive people because they have been exposed to so much harm and they don't know how to get better. If we put all those people onto a rehabilitation plan and we train their brains how to get back to organic brain health, it would just be such a socially enormous change. So bringing this back to schools, often when there's an incident of bullying in schools, the temptation is it'll go up to senior management and people will talk about zero tolerance policies and punishments and they'll try and fix term exclude or suspend the behavior out of the child using punishments and consequences. What you're saying is that's not going to work because that person is the product of their early life experiences. And if I had been in their shoes and had their life experiences, I would be doing the same things. So what we need is a different approach, actually. Obviously, we need to take care of the victim. They're very important. But we're not going to punish people out of this, whether they're an adult or a child. Exactly. That is the absolute takeaway that's so critical. People are afraid of dealing with mental behaviors and mental acting out. They see it as threatening, basically. So especially with children, you have the opportunity to change this trajectory As a person gets older and older and their neural networks become more and more entrenched, it becomes extremely difficult to change default patterns. Now, I want to be very clear that we can change default patterns. It's just that our society has a tendency to allow highly abusive people to do their abuse, adults, for years and years and years. I can rattle off the names and these are household names now of people who have done abuse for 30 years. It's been covered up. It's been exposed as a big scandal. But you have to ask yourself, why do we create these very stringent policies for children that we do not apply to adults? Our school system has been exposed. We know this. We have to admit it to ourselves as rife with highly abusive teachers and administrators. So once we can put that on the table and find the courage to take a look at that and see that it's a cycle, that a bullied brain becomes a bullying individual or it turns it against themselves... We are not going to change this massive medical problem. We are not going to address mental health or understand that mental health is directly correlated with brain health. But we don't talk about our brains. We don't teach our children. We don't build our school systems around up-to-date neuroscientific information. And this outdated system we're in is not leading to health or happiness or high performance. So we have to find the courage to change it. And we all have to work together. Some teachers will be listening to this. And they'll be thinking, all my career, I've been told to have very high expectations for the kids so you can bring out the best in them. So what's the difference between setting high expectations so kids can achieve their potential and creating an environment that's overly harsh or bullying, in your view? High expectations are one of the best things that you can offer to children. Great teachers know that if you make expectations unrealistic for children at their different ages and stages of development then you are setting them up for failure, lack of confidence, feelings as if they can't achieve what they want. 
But if you have a child and you say, you know what? The sky is the limit with you. You have been gifted with an incredibly healthy brain and body. And we know that brains are just unlimited in what they can do. And I want to support you every step of the way. The first thing you need to know is you have to believe in yourself. And this is documented in extensive research. If you want a child to reach peak performance, if you want to create a talent hotbed, you need children that believe they can achieve their goals. Now, if you're using humiliation, if you are telling them that they're, I mean, think of all the words that we all know that people use, you know, everything from put downs to belittlement to shaming, humiliating. If you're using any of those types of strategies, you're not building belief in the child. You're making the child feel as if mistakes are embarrassing, as if the natural way that the brain learns is unacceptable. The brain learns by making mistakes. We should be celebrating them. But in our school system, we teachers have been taught to give them a bad mark, to tell them they didn't reach the top. I mean, it's very old fashioned what we do. And that's why I find the science so exciting. I think it gives us teachers an opportunity to think outside the box and change some of the ways in which we've been taught that this is how you get results because it's not backed up in research. Humiliation, shaming, homophobic slurs, swearing at kids, any of these things, they don't get results. So there's not a single research piece out there that you can find written by any scholar that will put their name to it that says that shaming or humiliating or harshly treating children, giving them expectations that are impossible to fulfill, none of it works. So are we saying what does work is high expectations, but building kids up rather than knocking them down to achieve those expectations if they're realistic for the child? Exactly. I mean, it's the difference between, you know, when you raise somebody up, that's the opposite of pulling them down. Humiliation, it comes from the Latin for earth, humus, earth. Humiliation is a pushing down, raising up expectations and saying sky's the limit and let's use scaffolding and I'm here to support you and help you and give you every opportunity I can to exercise that incredible brain you've got in your head. That's very, very different. What sort of strategies then should we use, turning to the victim of the bullying, what sort of strategies should we use to support those kids? And in your book, you talk about how kids can recover using the right approach to the damage that the bullying is done. What sort of strategies should we be using? How can we support them best? I think the key thing that kids need to know and adults need to know is that we all have brain plasticity. We all have, right until the very last day we're on the planet, neuroplasticity. And the key thing is, if a child is being harmed or if a child has been bullying, we need to sit them down and say, you know what? You're showing signs that your brain is quite upset. It's been activated. It's been threatened. And I want to help you replace those very anxious, very threatened neural networks with healthier ones. But you have to work with me. It's not a quick fix. It takes time. But what we have to do, adults and children, is practice not defaulting to something that's been trained into us, that's shaped our brain. We need to say, nope, that is no longer healthy. We know for a fact it doesn't work. We know that. So let's catch each other out and say, wait a second, you know, you're yelling and that's threatening. Let's all take a deep breath here and calm down because we know that yelling is not healthy for our brain. And I mean, if we trained our children to have that kind of confidence to, you know, hand up, excuse me, teacher, you're getting the kind of tone, (laughs) you're getting this belittling tendency is happening. You're using words that are actually hurtful and you're embarrassing us and you're embarrassing so-and-so. We have to stop that because we all know it's not healthy for our brains and we have to work to get something much healthier in place. What would that look like? 
oh, well, we know for a fact, and we want to use research, we know that empathy is incredibly healthy for brains. We know compassion is healthy for brains. We know that when we create a safe environment for children to make mistakes, to learn, to try out different selves as their teenagers and try out different opportunities for experimenting, all these sorts of things, that safe environment allows brains to flourish. And when a child has had a hurt brain, whether that child is the bullying child, which is a big indicator of having a hurt brain, or the child has been on the receiving end of another child's aggression or an adult's aggression, there's very specific exercises and steps we can take that I discuss at length in the book. The book is constructed on, okay, we know this is a disaster. What can we do to fix it? So throughout, I mean, I'll just give you a couple of examples for your audience, but I use mindfulness in the book because it's being tested throughout all kinds of neuroscience studies. Mindfulness is immensely healthy for brains because basically what you're communicating when, when you start to do slow, purposeful breathing and you close your eyes, you're telling your brain that there isn't a predator in the room. There's no threat. There's no danger. And when you do that, you're allowing your brain to let go of the sympathetic nervous system and activate the parasympathetic nervous system, which is doctors refer to it as rest and digest. That's when the body is healthy and calm and centered. And then I use that as an opportunity to do visualization of the brain. I want my readers to talk to their brains understand their brains, see their brains, work with their brains, not against them, because that's how we can really optimize this immensely powerful captain that rules our lives. One of the things you mentioned in the book that I personally found very interesting was there's a chemical associated with neuroplasticity called BDNF. And for our brains to achieve the greatest plasticity, we need a lot of BDNF in our system. The more, the more plastic we are. Would you mind just talking about that a little bit? Because I'm sure our listeners will find that really interesting. Yeah, BDNF is described by scientists as it acts like a fertilizer. So in the brain, it flourishes our neural connections. It helps neurogenesis, which is the birth of new brain cells. It allows us to think better, learn better, be more creative. And one of the best ways to get BDNF activated in the brain is through aerobic exercise. So brains love exercise. The more you're moving, our brains were designed to be out in the wilderness. They were designed to be in nature. They were designed to be perpetually connected to this incredible, fabulous moving body. And so a quick check you can do for yourself is to say, if what you're doing is good for your heart, if you're eating food that's good for your heart, for example, and you're doing aerobic exercise, which we know is excellent for your heart, then you're also doing great things for your brain. You're pumping it full of this fertilizer, this BDNF. And so think of our kids. If we want our kids to be brilliant at academics, we've got to get them out of their desks. They should be running around. They should be challenging their bodies and being strategic while moving. Playing sports is one of the greatest things for the human brain. It was designed for that. If you're a teacher or a parent listening to this podcast, what's the first step that you can take today to learn more about helping kids or students overcome the damage of bullying? What's the first steps you can take? The first thing I would do is sit kids down or have them run around while I'm talking and tell them that they need to understand that if they are bullying other children, they're hurting their brain in really, really serious ways. They're dismantling their empathic neural networks. And as we said before, that's a superpower that the human brain has. And just to remind people exactly what empathy is, it's not sympathy. Empathy is not when you feel sad that something or a pity for someone or sorry that something's happened to another person. Empathy is when you deeply, deeply relate to what they're going through. You open yourself up. One of the best expressions for it is you walk in someone else's shoes. 
when you do that, you're being empathic. This is a survival skill that babies have and all the way through childhood, as long as it doesn't get dismantled. It's the ability to know what the powerful people in the room are thinking and doing and feeling. So empathy is key. So if you tell a child that's bullying and say, you know what, hey, come into the principal's office. I am so worried about you. I'm really worried about the behavior that you're manifesting. It's a sign to me that you're struggling. There's something wrong. But what I need you to know is it's hurting your brain. And I can't let that happen. How can we work together to get you the help you need so that you're not hurting your brain anymore? And you're saying the same thing to the victim. What has happened to you is it's hurt your brain. You don't have any bruises or bumps or blows on your body, but you know what has happened? It's hurt your brain. So we're going to work together now. We have a very clear evidence-based program. You and me are going to work together to get that brain back on track, healthy and strong once again. We're going to strengthen your neural networks so that you can recover from the harm that's been done to you. We're only just getting started, really, and we're at the end of the interview. In the book, you do discuss practical techniques that you can use to help those kids redevelop those neural networks and and strengthen their brains. How can our listeners find out more about you, your website, and your books? My newest book is called The Bullied Brain, and the most important part is the subtitle, Heal Your Scars and Restore Your Health. So The Bullied Brain, but it's all about healing and it's all about recovery. So that's my latest book. And my website is, I actually have created a a whole enterprise around this because I think it's so important. And I want teachers and parents and coaches in particular to know about this. I want it to change the way we educate our children and get them healthier and happier. And so my website now is called Bullied Brain. And everything I do is, you know, so my Twitter is at Bullied Brain, my Instagram at Bullied Brain. Etc. So if you want to find me, that's the best way. I love to consult and work with different people. I'm absolutely devoted to helping kids and teachers and parents and coaches. So don't hesitate to reach out. I'll do the very best I can to see this change happen. And we'll put direct links to your resources in the episode description as well. And finally, we ask this of all of our guests, who's the key figure that's influenced you? Or what's the key book that you've read? that's had the biggest impact on your approach to working with children? And I've read the book, so I think I know what the answer might be, but I'm going to let you answer for yourself. You know that the answer is Dr. Michael Merzenich. Dr. Michael Merzenich is one of the most highly awarded neuroscientists alive today. He's an American. um, He's 80 years old. He's so sought after that he gets over 100 emails a day from, you know, the armed forces of America and NATO and so on. But when I wrote him, I told him what my project was about, and he said he would meet with me, which was amazing. And when I told him how worried I was about children, I spent about seven minutes in extreme anxiety telling him the story. And he just looked at me and he said, how can I help you? And from that point on, he's been helping me get the science perfect in my book. He's been helping me connect with other neuroscientists and know what we can do, the research we need to conduct, how we can really change the fate of our children, which is really right now, it's pretty dire. And he's just such a wonderful man. The book that he's written that I highly recommend to your audience is Soft Wired. Um, Soft Wired is a term he uses because so many people believe that the brain is hardwired. It can't be changed. You're born this way. You're born with smarts or you're born without them, whatever. You're born with a great character. You're born without one. None of that's true. You can change your brain from this moment until the final moment that you're alive on the planet. And that is our only social and emotional and intellectual responsibility. We can change our brains. We can make them stronger. We can make them weaker. And that's what you learn when you are learning from Dr. Michael Merzenich. I think that's a brilliant way to wrap up the podcast. A very positive message. Jennifer Fraser, 
Thank you for being on the show. Thanks for having me, Simon. Wow, that was really fascinating to find out that bullying literally results in damage to how the brain is structured and works. Jennifer's take on this is really, really interesting. And I'll leave a direct link to her book and website in the show description. And I'd like to tell you about a new download that you can get from our website. It's called How to Help Children Manage Anger and Other Strong Emotions. In the guide, we give you resources and ideas all based on evidence and research-backed practices for helping kids understand and become more aware of their emotions and take positive actions when they start to feel overwhelmed. Okay, so this is a completely free download and you can get it by visiting beaconschoolsupport.co.uk, clicking on the free resources tab at the top of the screen and you'll see an option to download how to help children manage anger and other strong emotions. We'll also drop a direct link to the download in the episode description to this podcast. If you found today's podcast interesting or valuable, make sure you don't miss another episode. Open up your podcast app now and tap the subscribe button or follow as it's called in Apple Podcasts. Then your podcast app will automatically download each and every episode as it's released you'll feel as chuffed as a kangaroo who's just looked in their pouch and found an extra large joey. That just leaves it to me to wish you a happy and successful week and to say that we both look forward to seeing you on the next episode of School Behaviour Secrets. Bye for now. Bye. Bye.